Father, let's pray before you sit down, okay? Heavenly Father, we just, right now we stand on that word. We just, we proclaim with our mouths that we need you, and that is the truth. As we're, you know, I feel it personally. We, we have it as a congregation. We feel it. We, we need you. Right now when we open up your word, we have so much more to learn. We do not know you enough yet. And so my prayer, I pray that you'd help us to grab hold of something, to understand it, give us the humility of heart that we need to rearrange our thinking based on your word and the courage to trust you and obey. Lord, you, these stories are accounts that we read we, you know, each week. People trusted you and they were right. Sometimes we don't trust you and that's wrong. Help us with that right now. I pray all this in Christ's name, amen. And you can have a seat. All right, so we'll just get the elephant in the room done. I got tennis shoes on. I'm, you know, my back is still kind of in recovery mode. Some days are better than others. So just don't look down here. Just look up here. Okay, it'd be great. Um, yeah. Man, wasn't it so wonderful to have the preschool VBS kids singing for us? Wasn't that ter- was so sad? They're so awesome. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, we're going to meet a... Uh, We've been tracking the life for the last few weeks, and we're going to do it a few more weeks. Uh, We're going to be tracking the life of Jacob. And one of the reasons why that worship song that Reuben has led us in has kind of been a consistent part of this this series, Um, it's the same God. And even though there's a lot about the customs of the people of this day, so sometimes we have to kind of pick apart things that are different because it is a different culture. The people are fundamentally the same. The people are, are dealing with the same God, walking in the same world, dealing with the same challenges. And that's one of the reasons why it's so encouraging not to sort of set the Old Testament off to the side, but to dig in and go, man, what did God do in the life of Jacob and how can we know about that? Now, in a couple weeks, we're, gonna, we're probably going to deal with maybe the most famous story of all in Jacob's life the night that Jacob wrestled the angel of the Lord, he wrestled God. We're going to have to get our heads around that. He wrestled and won. And because he won, he won a blessing. Um, How do you train in wrestling to the point that you could wrestle God and win? You're going to have to wrestle some other characters that aren't quite as strong as God And as we've been tracing the life of Jacob, one of the things that we've seen, and we're going to see it again today, God God ordained, he's a a righteous man, God ordained that he was going to have a life of conflict. And he was going to trust in God and exercise wisdom in a growing way, exercise more wisdom and, and really grow up. And today we're going to read the account when he met his match in, uh, in a woman that he fell in love with. And her name was Rachel. And um, she didn't have an easy life either. We're going to look at that today. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about wrestling. You know, I didn't wrestle when I was younger. Uh, the only time I wrestled was I was in, uh, we did have to do wrestling in PE. Do they still have PE anymore? Physical education? Yeah, where, 
where every ninth grader goes to lose his self-esteem because we had to wear these shorts. Guys, do you remember the shorts that we wore in the 80s? Remember, have you ever seen Larry Bird play basketball and you're like, can you wear those shorts? It's terrible. We, yep. And as you can imagine, I have translucent legs. You know, if you go like way down to the deep part of the ocean, there's some of the fish that are basically fluorescent. That's the color of my legs. You know, so I remember being in PE and our PE teacher was the football coach. And our football coach, he, unlike us, he liked those shorts. He wore them all the time. And he also loved long leaf red man chewing tobacco. He chewed chewing tobacco all day long. You'd be in PE doing these, you know, windmill stretches and he'd walk by you, comment about how pathetic of a creature you were, and then spit like the outlaw Josie Wales right on the asphalt right next to you, you know. So we had to, after, after I got my face planted in a season of dodgeball, then we got to move on to wrestling. And I thought, you know what, I, you know, my arms are kind of long, I'm probably going to be good at this. Wrong. You know, they line me up, I, you know. Now, before they do this, they teach you a couple of techniques. One of those techniques was called the chicken wing. I, I still, to this day, I didn't understand it. I clearly didn't get it. The other kid did, and he wrapped me up like a drumstick, that's for sure. And I can just remember out of the corner of my eye with my like, neck twisted over, I'm looking over a coach, and he's down there with chewing tobacco coming out of his mouth. Chicken wing, chicken wing, you know? Wrestling wasn't my thing. I definitely wasn't cut out for it. Um, not that kind of wrestling. But I don't think that you can talk to a person who's come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and ever meet somebody who doesn't have to wrestle. The Apostle Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, principalities and powers, and he was talking to everybody. But it's not like Satan, it's not like Satan, you know, comes out and grabs hold of you personally. Um... But life will get its hands on you, won't it? And all of us have to kind of step back and ask ourselves the question, am I wrestling against life? Or has my heavenly father planned my life and wrestling with life can be the same as wrestling with him? Maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with the situation that your heavenly father has brought into your life. And I I hope if that's the case, that as we look at the account in the life of Jacob, that you can learn something, be challenged, corrected, uplifted. This is why when the Bible says um, every word of scripture is God breathed and it is useful because every time you come to it, you need and every time you come to it, it has something more to unfold and give. So I'm going to ask you to take out your copy of God's word and stand to your feet as we get ready to unfold uh, God's word in the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 29. Now I'm going to read all all the chapter 29 and the first two verses of chapter 30 and try as you know as you can Um, the situations that we're going to see, there's going to be some things that are strange. Maybe you've never been a shepherdess. That's okay, but you get it. And um, there's love, there's a marriage, there's crying. You know, these are real things. Like, Try to listen to the sentences that they come and think about what's going on here. What What do I need to hear? Okay. All right. Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. 
For out of that well the flocks were watered, the stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Sound familiar? We'll come back to that. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak or tender, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, right now, please open up our minds and our hearts, open up our wisdom as wide as our Bibles, and write your law on our hearts where we need it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. Anybody have any messed up family dynamics? Any like this? Oh, okay, now, if you've uh, seen this story in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, that's a good thing, but a couple things just to kind of help us get into the real world. Uh, Jacob's not a young man here. He's 77 years old. Now, they live longer, so you know he's going to live about 150 years. This means he's about midlife. But when he comes and sees Rachel at the well and he rolls the water off, as it, the... the Genesis is wanting us to connect two events that happened together. The, the, the ground flowed with water when he rolled the stone off to the side, and the well of his eyes flowed with water. What, we, we don't, I mean, you can imagine for Jacob the emotional and psychological things going on. It's not just love and for her and her beauty, it is that. There is, an, there is an outflow of his love and affection for her. But he did not have an easy 77 years of life. He lived almost his entire life being the good son. He stayed at home in, in the tents. He served as the faithful son who basically was the steward manager of the household while his father turned more and more sinful was more and more entangled in the, son of, in the sin of his wicked son Esau. And so he kept doing the right thing. Young people, especially if you have siblings, you ever been in a situation where you did the right thing, your sibling was in the wrong, but somehow they got credit for the good and you got blamed for the bad? And didn't you just burn? Um, like, and didn't you have like a hard three days until you forgot about it and moved on? Can you imagine 77 years? Can you imagine 77 years in your household where you had the front row seat to watch your father dote on your brother who was wicked? Can you imagine if they had therapists in this day? Can you imagine what Jacob would have, what he would have talked about on the couch? I mean, there was a lot in those tears. He'd seen a lot of life. And in God's wisdom and sovereignty, he's going to meet a woman who is, I mean, she she is his mate. We're going to find out that not only did Jacob have a terribly delinquent father in Isaac, he was, he was, he was a believer, a man of faith, but delinquent and a terrible father to him. Rachel has an even worse father. Rachel's father, Laban, is not only delinquent. Later on in the chapters, both Rachel and Leah will opt to go, go live with Jacob instead of staying with their father. And the words that they'll use is, our father has sold us and devoured our inheritance. Laban was not interested in, in, um, in kindness to Jacob Laban was not interested in taking good care of his daughters. It should be a little bit puzzling because Rachel has brothers. Why isn't one of the brothers taking care of the sheep? I mean, this family situation is messed up. And what we see here is Rachel has an evil father. Um, She's the faithful daughter. She's the one who's taking care of the sheep. 
just like Jacob was the faithful son. Jacob had a terrible brother, a wicked brother in Esau, had to wrestle his brother from the womb and through his whole life. Rachel Rachel is going to have a a son and she's going to name that son. She's going to say, I have wrestled against my sister and prevailed. When Jacob meets, when Jacob meets Rachel, they are a match. Now there must also have been something about the fact that she was so closely related to Rebecca and the overtones between how this story of how Jacob meets her and how Isaac met Rebecca are there. He, he sees that she's, a good and God, she's, that she's a good and godly woman. And all these things come together in that moment. And so it's not wrong, even though it's, it's hard to kind of understand. Um, it should have stood out to you that when he first saw her and he rolled the stone away, this is the first time he's ever met her, and he starts weeping out loud. That, you know that? Guys, that's not how you want to start your first date. You know that, right? If you start weeping out loud on the first one, they're going to... Um, or uh, the kiss on the first date. You know that's not allowed either, everybody. Young people, you hear me? That's not allowed either. Um, you know, we don't know how long that interaction happened, but it, it, was, it was profound. So much so that we just get a real short sentence. Jacob loved her. Did you notice that when Jacob shows up to Laban, at first Laban's going to start his con game right from the beginning. But one of the things that he says when he's describing Jacob and the relationship that the two of them have, did you notice he said, you're my bone and my flesh? Anybody kind of can remember, where's the first time we heard that phrase in the Bible? You're my bone and you're my flesh. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When God made Eve and brought Eve to Adam, Adam looked at her and said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, many people understand that slightly wrongly and think that what he was saying is like, look, there's my wife. But what we see right here is since Laban uses the same phrase for Jacob, there's nothing marital going on between the two of them. But what he's saying is like, we're kin, we're family, we are brothers, So when Adam first sees Eve, the very first principle before they are put together in the bond of marriage, when Eve first is brought to him, because God made Adam and God made Eve, when Eve, sorry, when Adam first met Eve and recognized her, the very first thing that Eve was to Adam was his sister. The very first thing that Eve was to Adam was his sister. And this is an important principle in the Bible. And it's an important principle in this story right here. I mean, certainly around here at our church, it's, we cannot get out of the, the teaching of the Bible. We, we, everything that we believe, we go, man, show me what it says in God's word, and that's what we believe. And we believe that in, in a marriage relationship, that the husband is the head of the wife, And that means he's given a stewardship, leadership, and authority, responsibility within the marriage. He'll answer to God for that. That's true. And that's part of that covenant of marriage. But before that happens, before your husband and wife, it is is true that in the faith you are brother and sister. 
That you, that the husband has a relationship to the father for whom he will give an account to his performance in the role of the office of husband. That's, that's a job and a calling. And the wife will answer to her father for how she did at the role and the office of what it means to be a good and godly wife to a husband. And we see this in this account, and actually we see it get a little bit off in this account. Because when Rachel can't have children and her womb is closed, who does she have to deal with about that? The person she needs to deal with, the person she needs to wrestle with about his plan of her infertility at that moment right there, the person who she needs to go to and be frustrated with and complain to, she needs to go complain to God. But instead, she goes and complains to Jacob. And what does Jacob do? Jacob's anger is kindled against her. I'm not the one doing that to you. I can't be God to you. I am not God to you. And that's a very important thing in a marriage. God has designed marriage so that a husband and a wife must first be brother and sister. And what that means is the husband has a thriving and filling relationship to his heavenly father and he understands, I go to my heavenly father for all the resources that I need to be a good and godly husband. And a wife doesn't go to her husband to get those spiritual resources. A wife goes to God herself. Okay, God, you're my father. You've got to give me the resources that I need to be a good and godly wife. And if you get those things twisted around and a husband thinks that what he's really doing is he's looking to the wife to fulfill him or if a wife is looking to the husband to give me what I need, that's a marriage that will start to feed on itself. Instead, the whole design of Christian marriage is first you are brother and sister. Brother and sister in the Lord, both of you can go cry out to your heavenly father about the situations in your life. And then together as two disciples of Jesus Christ walking with him, you can say, God, give me the strength I need to be a good husband. Give me the strength I need to be a good wife. That's the way that God's designed it. And she's going to need some strength, man. Jacob comes to an agreement with Laban. Seven years I'm going to work for her. And they agree. And Laban had the opportunity at that point right there when he was making the agreement with him, if there were such a custom that, hey, sorry, the older has to go before the younger, if there were a custom like that, and if he was being a good kinsman to Jacob, he would have told him right there. But he did not. And Jacob worked seven years And that seven years is like a joy to him. It goes by so fast because the end zone for him is that marriage. And then after the seven years, did you notice that Laban didn't say, oh, I'm so glad your time is served and now it's time for a marriage. Laban should have been the one to initiate it. Jacob has to go ask for his paycheck. He has to go after the seven years is complete. It's time now. And listen to this, Laban gets all the people, all the family and all the people of the town and they have the wedding ceremony. She walks down the aisle. We're modernizing this version, okay? She walks down the aisle with the dress. They play the song. There's a best man speech. They have the reception. Probably plenty of wine was flowing at that reception. There's a feast. Can you imagine being Rachel? You went through the whole ceremony. You're at the reception. You dance with, you know, you did the daddy-daughter dance. Everybody's congratulating you. 
And then when the evening comes and it's time to consummate the marriage, maybe your dad, maybe one of your brothers grabs you and pulls you back into the tent. And you have to watch your sister Leah go into the tent with that man. It can't be that they had a wonderful relationship up to that point. When she says, I've wrestled against my sister and prevailed, we do not know what was going on in that relationship before that. But anybody in here have a sister? Anybody have a sister who you're like, you know, she gets on my nerves? Would you do that to her? See, we can, we can start to empathize and sympathize with, um, with her in this story because the account tells us that she was rejected and we can all feel the pain of what it would probably be to be in a relationship where you're second class. No one, who wants to be second class? Nobody does. And when she gets treated second class, you can feel like, oh, that's, that's so hard. And the Lord does. He responds to her affliction and gives her a child. But she's not innocent. She went in that tent and in that tent, she had the opportunity. She could have very easily done the right thing. Jacob, no, no, no. It's, it's Leah. My dad, he's trying to steal from you. But I'm not going to do it. But she didn't. And the whole situation's messed up. Leah is both a, a victim. She, she will be treated as second rate, and that will be hard. Especially because she's been the older sister. And to be the older sister in a family is to kind of be the princess. And since it really is true that she should have been married off first, if she was, if she was married to, to Jacob and she's the older sister, the, the head wife of a household like this would sort of be like the first lady. So for all of her life, she's grown up being the older sister in charge and now her younger sister, Rachel, now she's going to have to live in this family system where her younger sister is the first lady and gets to boss her around. I mean, it, it's, it's messed up. It was messed up for Rachel to watch it happen. It is really messed up for Jacob because Jacob is the one who didn't do anything. He agreed to seven years, which is a ridiculous amount of time, but he agreed to it because he loved her. And what we see that Laban did, this, this story in this account, remember, one of the things that we've picked up way back in Abraham's life is on a fateful day, God himself appeared to Abraham and gave him a word of prophecy. He told him what was going to happen in the future, and it happened in a way that was dark, and there was awe and fear in it for Abraham. And God told him, 400 years, you and your offspring are going to be enslaved. And in the New Testament, Galatians tells us that the time clock for that slavery and oppression, the time clock for that started the day that Ishmael made fun of Isaac. And so what we see happening over and over again in a way that's circling around and around but getting more and more intense, this is a little scenario that's exactly like the pattern of what happens to Joseph and to the Hebrew people when Pharaoh enslaves them. Everybody remembers that story? Joseph did such a wonderful job leading that Pharaoh was very positive. But another Pharaoh came up who didn't recognize him and know him. 
and then began slowly to treat the people not as equals, but to begin to treat them like servants and then ultimately to treat them like slaves. This is exactly what Laban does to Jacob. At first, when Jacob arrives, Laban says, oh, you're my brother. And the reason he does is because Laban is the guy when Abraham sent his faithful servant to get Rebecca, his wife, he poured out wealth on that family. And Laban had spent it all. We know this because when Jacob and Laban are in a showdown at the very end of their relationship, Jacob says, you know that you had almost nothing when I got here and your whole household has been blessed because I've been here. Now you let me go, what he says. See, Laban starts off treating him like kin because he thinks there's going to be camels and gold and frankincense and myrrh, that this is going to be a big payday for him now that his kin folk are here with money. But as soon as he realizes and sees that this situation is not like that, Jacob stays there a month, and over that month, Laban comes to find out the exact situation. Ah, your brother wants to kill you so you can't go back, huh? Oh, your father has sent you here to get a wife from me, from one of my two daughters. Huh. You see how Jacob's stuck? So then as soon as he figures that out, one of the very next things he says, it sounds like he's being kind to him, but he's not. The very next thing he says after a month is, should you work for me as a servant without getting wages? What did he just do when he said that? He reduced him from a family member to a servant. And Jacob lived with it. Okay, I will serve you. I'll serve you seven years. But what I'm going to get back in return is this wife. And I love her and I will gladly serve for her. But then through this turn of events, he worked seven years for Rachel. On the night that he was supposed to get Rachel, Laban dumped Leah on him because his whole goal was to unburden himself from both of those daughters. Because he's a loser. We know who's a loser because he practices witchcraft. He tells us later on that he's learned some facts by something called divination. And for us modern people, this can sound weird because all the people who do the, ter- the weird tarot cards and all that stuff, we know that that's all muttering and, you know, stu- we know that's all stupid stuff, Yes. Yeah, you read the Zodiac or you get a fortune cookie. Everybody understands that's all garbage. Yes? Yes, okay. Um, but in the, in the Old Testament especially, at, before the resurrection of Christ happened, it was a weirder world. So that when it says that he learned something by divination, he got in touch with evil spirits and learned facts. And he's not the only one. In the Old Testament, one time King Saul was in a sticky situation and he needed some information and he wasn't going to go to God about it because God wasn't going to tell him because he was in sin and being wicked. So he consulted with a medium, a girl, a young girl who was a sorceress. this, This is in the Bible. And that sorceress conjured the spirit of Samuel the prophet And he didn't want to be. When he got there, he says, well, who's bothering me? What am I doing here? I don't want to be here. And he has a conversation with Saul. 
So when we read here that Laban learned something by divination, this means he's in touch with the evil supernatural world. Not only that, he has these little family figurine idols that he's worshiping. He's a wicked man. When he trades Leah for Rachel, did Jacob want Leah in the beginning? I'll work seven years for one wife. See what Laban does? Laban gives him two wives and then doubles the time. The second seven years, who was he serving for? He was serving seven years of labor for a wife that he didn't want. What do you call labor for a wage that you don't want? Slavery. And later, after God has made him prosperous in spite of it, Jacob is going to go to Laban. And he's basically going to say, let me and my daughters and my sons and my flocks, let us go. Laban won't let him go. He'll escape and Laban will chase him down and confront him. Does any of that story sound familiar to you? But it's hard not to, I mean, read this, this chapter and the next one and kind of scratch your head, though, because through four women, an unwanted wife named Leah, a wanted wife named Rachel, the wanted wife will only have two sons, but the unwanted wife will have six, the two servant girls. Together, they'll all add up to 12 sons, and these 12 sons would turn out being the 12 tribes of Israel. And see, this is the part that we have to kind of step back from and just say this. Everything in this situation is messed up. And yet at the same time, everything is going according to plan. That night that Laban took Leah and put her in there, Laban sinned. That was wrong. That was a sin. And Leah sinned. She sinned sexually by consummating. She had sex with him without any kind of ceremony, any covenant making. That's, that's sin. She sinned against God. She sinned against him by being deceptive. That night when she's in there, Jacob and her, It wasn't sin on Jacob's part. In his, he, what, his understanding, that's my wife. I've worked for her. I married her. I committed to her. I love her. That's the appropriate context, context for sexual intimacy. For him, he was doing the righteous thing. She's sinning. Laban's sinning. Now, now what's he going to do? Say, sorry, I don't like it. He can't do that. And where's God in all this? And I have to tell you that there's some Christians who would say that this, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, when you ask the question, does God control everything? People say, you know what? Some, people, some Christians agree with that. Some Christians disagree with that. It's not really a, kind of like a primary Christian issue. And I would just say, well, maybe not if you have an awesome, perfect life. Maybe not. But for me, it's not a secondary issue. Because I was born out of sin. 
My, you know, my mom, I, don't, I know she was into drugs and all kinds of things. I don't pretend to know what situation she was really in in her life. But I have enough memories of what was going on that the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't central in our household. Let me say that. But it's kind of weird because my name is Seth Gabriel. Those are kind of bible names, yeah? My brother's name is Justin Matthew. So like, My dad's a scoundrel. I don't, I, he never showed up again. The night I was conceived and born, my, my biological mother and biological father were sinning. And I was conceived. Did God will that? Now, see, some people be like, oh, now you're in complicated technical theological territory. Well, sure I am, but there's only two choices. You're like, well, did, did God will that? Because if he willed for me to be born, and it was the two of their DNA that needed to combine and the right egg to get fertilized, the, you know, the birds and the bees, I'm sure everybody knows all this. It's just precisely the right thing, then... If I was God's plan, then God planned a sin. Can't you see the problem down that path? Can't you see the problem down the other one? Oh, God didn't plan that. Then what does that make me? I I mean, think of what this would mean. This would mean that... um, Here's the kind of kids that would be like, these are, this is a God's planned kind of a kid. You know, two, you got, um, got Johnny. He grow, he's, he's born into a great Christian family with a mother and father who love the Lord and come to FAC. And, you know, br- brings them to the preschool VBS and one day he sings in, you know, VBS Sunday and then he grows up in the, in the youth group. He serves the Lord. The, you know, the parents have devotions every night. He walks faithfully with the Lord, you know, goes to college. And at college, he meets Susie. Little does he know that Susie also grew up in a godly Christian home and at FAC. In fact, they sang in the same VBS choir together. They didn't even know it. Came up in the youth group together, were taught how to love the Lord and memorize scripture, followed him, you know, went to college. When they, when they were going to go on their first date, the very first thing they, th- they talked about was um, their love for God. Before they went on their first date, they took out the Bible and read some scripture, like you all do on your first dates, yes? They, they prayed, Lord, thank you, thank you. They came to some agreements with both parents about guidelines and boundaries. They agreed with each other and they never broke them. One thing led to another. God's will was in it. They got married. And if you say, well, now, now when they have kids, that's God's plan. Because that one's easy. See that? Bora me. And the, the plain teaching of the Bible is God in his, in his masterful sovereignty and his wisdom that's above all things. God wills sin. For him, it is not sin. For the people who perform that, it is sin. 
and they choose to do it, even though they could not choose to do any other thing. And I just have two reasons why I know this is true. One of them, the fourth son of Leah, of a marriage that should never have been, that was wrong. The fourth son of Leah, his name is Judah. And if you turn to the book of Matthew, you don't have to, if you turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew is like the ancestry.com of Jesus Christ. You can work your way all the way back his family line. And guess who his great, 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 great grandfather was? Judah. God's plan. I have one other reason. That God wills sin. He wills it. For him it's not sin, but for the people who do it, it is sin. And that's the cross. Pontius Pilate sinned. Herod sinned. The people who shouted out, crucify him, they sinned hard. And Peter got up and preached a sermon after Jesus was resurrected and he was on fire with the Holy Spirit. He preached a whale of a sermon. He pointed to this very event in the very city that had happened looking at some of the very people who shouted out crucify him. And he said, you did it. You crucified the son of God. And then right after that, he said, according to the definite plan of God, and you better repent. God does will sin. For him, it is not sin. For the people who sin, it is sin. And he holds them accountable. How does God hold those things together? All the wonder of the mystery of his majesty, it's beyond searching and finding out. His ways are so much higher than our ways. He's God. Anybody here today in a situation where everything is all messed up, and your feeling is like this, well, this can't be going according to plan. Well, it may not be good, and there may be things that need to be repented of from your side and from other people's side, but you can rest assured about one thing, nothing ever happens outside of God's plan. And can't you see why Jacob is not the only one who's got to wrestle God about his life? Anybody here wrestling with God about life? He's the only place that you can go because he's the only one who is ultimately in charge. And he's good. He's the definition of good. All right, would you stand? Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is hard We'll never get our hands around you. God, I do pray for anybody here whose life has taken a turn, not exactly like Jacob's, but kind of where a situation is all messed up. It just does not seem, this can't be going according to plan. Lord, help us not just throw our hands up and go, well, God's got a plan. We got to look and ask ourselves, is there blood on my hands? Have I sinned? Is there something that I've done? Show us how to do that. And Lord, I pray for for those people who are like Jacob, tangled up in a situation and they didn't do anything wrong, but the situation is going wrong. 
I pray that today's scripture would be a real encouragement. Nothing ever goes wrong, actually. Because the wrongest thing that ever happened, the crucifixion of your son, went according to your definite wonderful plan. You're astounding, Lord. We love you so much. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.